Good evening and welcome to Crime Therapy True Crime Stories. My name is Elaine and I am your host. Welcome to the first time listeners and welcome back to the current subscribers. As always, I can be reached on Facebook at Crime Therapy True Crime Stories and on YouTube with the same channel name. I apologize that I have not been present lately. However, as we all know, personal lives sometimes demand more of us and our desires get shoved to the back burner of the stove. I'm very glad to be back at it with all of you as we continue to dive into our Only in Ohio series. The following is a disclaimer and it will only take a second to get through, so please bear with me. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are of my own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of any person, business, or organization. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. Please be advised that this episode contains language describing horrendous crime scenes. If you are sensitive to such topic matter, this podcast is so not for you. The next crime, or should I say crimes, is gruesome and one of the most aggressive murders that I have ever read about. The why behind the extreme violence of these crimes, I doubt we'll ever know, other than it was birthed by the mind of a deranged young man, a very sick individual. I don't say that in a kind way either. This man is the epitome of quick and violent evil. I often wonder what makes people, especially criminals, do what they do. What mindset do they have that can make decisions, like in Matthew Hoffman's case, to so easily end the lives of three people and several animals? I could spend hours researching this, looking into interviews and stories, but in my humble opinion, there will never be an answer as to why. And that, as a true crime podcaster and type of person I am, bothers me to no end. I can't imagine if I had a family member that was murdered and I would never get a straight answer. If I got one, I know the answer would never be acceptable. And it would be more complex other than, you know, I really don't know why I did it. Some mental health professionals are of the mindset that a large majority of the reason we are who we are is contributed to environmental factors and experiences that we've had as children and young adults. I somewhat agree with this. However, as an adult, would there be a way to naturally change your mindset concerning your past experiences in your childhood? Or would it always be present as a little spot in the corner of your mind that contributes to your reasoning with your adult decisions? These are just some of the things I wonder about. As I warned before, the story is pretty gruesome and it was created from a deep-seated anger within Matthew Hoffman. The story starts off the same way as many other crime stories do, a small town with a hometown feel. In this case, the town is Mount Vernon, Ohio. The young man that to many appeared just to be an average guy, Matthew Hoffman. What Hoffman did was anything but nice. 
And as an outsider looking in, I never fault people for not picking up on red flags in the beginning. As time passed, Matthew's neighbors viewed a shift in his personality. His girlfriend left him. The house that he lived in over time had the electric and gas shut off due to his financial means. And that was only the beginning. Neighbors stated that he was just plain strange. Strange? Well, that was an understatement. Matthew, he never really did care what people thought about him. They could all go to hell, in his opinion. He had recently returned from Colorado, where he had gotten himself into a bunch of legal trouble involving arson and theft. So as many people found guilty in the court system do, he found himself in jail for several years. Upon his release, he wanted to start over and headed to Ohio. His mother had a house in Mount Vernon, and it was all kept up in working order until his girlfriend moved out. And that's when things started to spiral. Once the average nice guy, Matthew had adopted some strange behaviors that did not go unnoticed by the people that lived around him. With no girlfriend, no gas, no electricity, and no job, Matthew sat and stewed in the anger of what he would call later to be a string of bad luck. To feel better, Matthew broke the law by breaking into houses of the people in the area that he would feel led normal lives. He would be patient, waiting for people to leave for the day, then break in the house and take whatever he wanted. Not exactly the way that I would blow off steam, but I don't know. Everybody has their own vice. Along with this particular behavior, he liked trees. And I mean really like trees. Obsessed about them. On more than one occasion, he was seen watching people in the neighborhood from trees. Creepy, right? He also caught squirrels and could be seen grilling them to make a meal out of them. Side note, people never invited him over to barbecue. He also kept a few of the, uh, of the squirrels in the freezer, just for good measure. Strange and weird, but his actions were nothing compared to what he was about to do on the morning of November 10th, 2010. One sad fact out of many is that Matthew knew the family he killed. That's right, he had interactions with them in the past, especially Cody, who was 11 years old. Cody and Matthew would hang out throwing a football, watching TV, or playing video games at Tina Hoffman's house, and Matthew had driven Sarah to and from the local movie theater at times. That was all well and good until Tina cut off ties with Matthew due to his growing erratic behavior. She did not want Matthew to be an influence on her children. Perhaps that was one thing that set him off. He was no longer included in a part of his family that he felt normal. On the morning of November 10th, Matthew woke up from camping outside the Hoffman's house in the trees next to the house. Yep, which he had done on more than one occasion. It was a normal morning for the family. Cody and Sarah went to school and Tina was greeted by her best friend, Stephanie, 
They wanted to go out and get some groceries and have some girl time. But once everyone was gone, Matthew broke into the house by slipping under the garage door that was lifted slightly because it was broken. He remained inside the house for about an hour when Tina unexpectedly came home earlier that he thought. She dropped the groceries on the floor in the kitchen to get ready to put them away when he charged at her with a hunting knife. Stephanie, her friend, was still outside by the vehicle when Matthew attacked Tina, dragging her to the bedroom and stabbing her several times. Tina was drugged into the bathroom, and while he was taking care of her and processing her at what he later called it during the trial, Stephanie came into the house. Before Stephanie could realize what was going on, Matthew attacked her, stabbing her twice in the chest with enough force to almost instantly kill her. During all this, the family dog would not stop barking, so he grabbed the dog, put it in the bathroom, killed it, dismembered it, and added it to the collection of very full trash bags that were made from Stephanie and Tina. Once he finished with the bodies, he located some motor oil and poured it over the worst of the blood marks and the stains. His reasoning was that it would cover his gruesome crime, and also it would act as an accelerant when he planned to set the house on fire later. Not keeping track of time, Matthew didn't realize that his killing spree was not quite over. He was too busy concentrating on the mess he had made. The time was in the early afternoon when the children walked into the house, first believing everything was normal. Cody and Sarah came home only to find blood spatters on the couch and the front walls as Matthew emerged from the bathroom and went to attack both of them. Sarah ran into her bedroom while Matthew violently stabbed Cody in the back of the head once. With such force, he instantly died from the wound. However, with his method of operation, he stabbed the 11-year-old boy a few more times just to make sure he was dead and took him to the bathroom. Matthew then burst into Sarah's bedroom, and in the struggle, he cut her finger as she was attempting to dial 911. The phone fell on the floor before the call could be connected. Once in the room with Sarah, he raised the large bloody knife, and instead of slicing her, he sliced through some electrical wiring of a fan in the room. He tied her hands together, using the wire, and simply told her that he would kill her if she made noise. Later, Sarah stated to police that he was really angry. His voice sounded like a yell almost, and he was telling me what to do. It was like if someone yells at you and it's a command. Throwing her across his shoulder, he found some material to gag her with and then carried her down to the basement. His eyes scanned the dank room, finally resting on an old sled. Cutting the rope from the sled, he put her down and tied her legs together. He also put a pillowcase over her head slung her back over his shoulder and carried her upstairs before dumping her on the kitchen floor. 
She sat devoid of all her senses except hearing, and she heard Matthew going back and forth from the bathroom to the kitchen for some reason. After a very long time, to her, he came back to the kitchen and ordered her not to struggle or make any noise. If she did, he confirmed that he would indeed kill her. Once a statement had been made, he picked her up and took her down some stairs. She realized she was put into Stephanie's Jeep. She was inside the Jeep that was still in the garage. She was trying to figure out exactly what was going on and where was her family. He came back, putting blankets over her and covering her completely. She was able to feel around a little bit and realized that she was placed beside some trash bags that she fenced were full. Not until later did she realize that her mother, her mother's friend, her brother, and her beloved dogs were in those trash bags. Once he came back to the Jeep, he drove it to Pipsville Road Baseball Field. And she was able to peek a little bit through the thin fabric of the pillowcase. She knew the baseball field well because that's where her brother Cody had played ball at. And once he had retrieved his own vehicle, he transferred Sarah from the Jeep to the Yaris, telling her not to move or else. He drove her back to his house, making sure no one was watching him, and took Sarah into the house. Once inside, he took Sarah to a small bathroom where he removed the pillowcase. Half of her confusion was due to the way the bathroom was decorated. There were more than a dozen strange drawings on the wall. They were mostly drawn in black paint. The contrast of the white walls did not help but add to the total strangeness of what was going on. The figures included a bird, a dog, a man that was grinning with a yin-yang symbol on his shirt, a truck, and that was not all. The weirdest drawing was of a middle-aged balding man situated so it looked like the bathroom faucet was coming out of his mouth. It's at this time Sarah knew she needed to be in survival mode, not just curiosity mode. What was he going to do with her? What did he do with her mother, friend, brother, the dog? Why did he just want her? After tying her up tightly in the bathroom and telling her that there was someone watching the house if she tried to run, he went back to the ballpark and to the jeep to figure out what to do with the trash bags full of the remains of Sarah's friends and family. Before stopping to get the Jeep, though, Matthew stopped by Walmart and purchased a blue tarp, large plastic garbage bags, a turkey sandwich, and a Halloween t-shirt because it was just a dollar. Tell me how that makes sense. But then again, look who we're dealing with. After disposing of the trash bags in his secret hiding spot and then dropping his Walmart stash off at Tina's house, he went back to his house to check on his captor. Now, on a side note, I'm 50 years old. I have four children. Three of those children are adults, and I have a daughter who is 16. 
At the time, Sarah was 13 years old. I try to imagine my 16-year-old and what she would do in that situation, and I could hope that she'd use the intelligence she'd been blessed with, much like Sarah did. Sarah knew she had to survive, and she needed to get him on her side, to try and get through to him. Not necessarily make him her friend, but not do anything to piss him further off. This was on top of the fear she had and the worry of not knowing where her family and friend was. At this time, she did not know the true extent of the horror that occurred. In a while, Hoffman took off the pillowcase again and attempted to make small talk with Sarah. But when she asked him about the drawings on the bathroom wall, she really didn't understand what he told her about them. She also noticed bags stuffed with leaves that he had put on every wall in his home. Now, I've seen the gruesome pictures of this, and these bags are just like normal Walmart bags that are stuffed with leaves and then secured to the wall of the whole house. When she asked him about them, he simply stated he used them as insulation to keep the house warm. When she asked if he knew where her brother and mother were, he just said no. By this time, law enforcement was aware that something occurred in the home, but they did not know exactly what. I know I would have had some thoughts if I walked into a crime scene that looked like a set from a horror movie. There was a ring around the bathtub and it was not made with dirt. It was made by the blood of three people and dog. November 10th, 11th, and 12th came and went. Sarah endured what she needed to endure to hope that it assisted her to survive. Matthew Hoffman had taken her to the basement, placed her on a bed of leaves, and raped her several times. On December 13th, detectives went to Walmart upon locating a tarp and other supplies that Matthew had purchased. They were located in Tina's garage after a search warrant had been issued. Law enforcement called the incident a kidnapping, but they knew it was much more gruesome than that with the sheer amount of blood they viewed in Tina's residence. Working with the store, they were able to locate the date and time the items were purchased. The next step was the video from the store. Once the video was watched and a description was available, the big break occurred. The detectives watched another surveillance tape of Matthew walking to a small car that the detectives recognized as a Yaris. At this point, the investigation was steady and in full swing. They had an idea of the description of the person, the vehicle type, and now the registration of Yaris's in the area would provide that little edge that they needed. They did locate that a Yaris was registered to Matthew Hoffman, a man that just renewed his driver's license 16 days before. On November 14th, a search warrant was issued for Matthew Hoffman. Due to what they found at Tina's residence, the choice was made to issue a no-knock entry 
In other words, the police did not announce that they were there. They yeeted themselves into the front door, located Hoffman, handcuffed him, and went to and further investigate the home. In the basement, on a wet bed of leaves, they found a little blonde girl confined by duct tape. Sarah had been found alive. Her condition was terrible. Famished, dirty, and wearing a trash bag, her big eyes looked up at the officer. He, she opened her mouth, and she stated, I have to go to school. She'd lost track of time, so she was worried that she would miss assignments and wanted to keep her grades up to the high level that she had them at. Upon being rescued, she was taken to a local hospital to get checked over and recover from her ordeal. I say recover only in the physical sense. Her mental health would take much longer to heal, if ever. Now, during this time, the police did not report that they had arrested Matthew in connection with the murders. So the community thought the family was still missing and they formed search parties in the coming days as Matthew Hoffman stayed silent on the whereabouts of Tina Stephanie Cody and the family dog. On November 18th, law enforcement was contacted by Matthew Hoffman's attorney with some news. Matthew would finally inform law enforcement of where he had hidden the bodies. With the assistance of a local park ranger, the detectives used a crude map that Matthew had drawn to locate the remains. Now, most of us would assume that he would have buried the trash bags. At least that's what I thought he did. But upon reading more into the story, that is not exactly fact. Remember, Hoffman has a fascination with leaves. Leaves come from trees, of course, and the detectives were led to a large tree in the local park that was reported to be 60 to 70 feet high. Approximately 50 feet in the air, the tree split, resulting in a hollow area inside the tree. And I'm sure at this time you're coming to the same conclusion that I did, and you would be correct. Hoffman put the trash bags in the hollow part of the tree, secure in the fact that they would never be found if he did not admit to where he had hidden the bodies. Matthew Hoffman was found guilty of the murders, and he was awarded with his actions with a life sentence in prison. That in and of itself is not the most amazing part of the trial. Sarah testified against him. The strength that it must have taken her, knowing what happened by the time of the trial, to go in that courtroom and face the person that killed her mother, her mother's best friend, her brother, and the family dog, and look him square in the face and tell her story. It just takes so much strength. Matthew's currently in the Toledo Correctional Institution where he is kept in protective custody and lives in a single cell. In my humble opinion, put him in the general population and see how he fares. He deserves it. Until next time, stay safe.